everybody. I'm Art Stevens. I'm managing partner of the Stevens Group. I'd like to welcome you to another in the podcast series of PR Masters. This series features luminaries and legends in the world of public relations. And our guest today is no exception. She is truly a PR master. She is Marion Salzman. She is Senior Vice President of Global Communications at Philip Morris International. Marion has been named one of the world's top five trend spotters and is among the world's most awarded public relations executives. In April 2018, Marion moved to Switzerland and embarked on her greatest challenge to date, heading global communications at Philip Morris International as it embarks on its journey to build a smoke-free future. And before joining PMI, Marion was CEO of Havas PR North America for nearly a decade, and she chaired its global PR assets. There, she reshaped the creative output, creating one of the most buzzed-about boutique agencies in North America and achieving top-five status at key U.S. and global awards shows. In recognition of these efforts, she was named PR Week's PR Professional of the Year for 2011. And before Havas, Marion has held senior management positions at Porter Novelli, J. Walter Thompson Worldwide, and Euro RSCG. She's also the author of 16 books. Marion, that's quite a background. So Marion Salzman, please welcome to the PR Masters podcast series. And indeed, you are a PR Masters. And how are you today? How are things in Switzerland where Marion is headquartered? I'm great today. I'm enjoying fall-like weather in what should be the dead of summer. So, so far, so good, given that our house in Switzerland, like most houses in Switzerland, are not air-conditioned. So, all good. Terrific. And thank you so much for joining us, Marion. My first question to you is that I'm sure you have given a tremendous amount of thought to leaving the agency world to join a global corporation. Can you take us through your thinking and why you made the decision you did? So, first of all, it was not a quick decision. I believe that I was first approached by uh, the headhunter on behalf of Philip Morris um, very end of summer of 2017 um, and made the decision to join in February of 18 and moved about 90 days later. I guess I made the decision end of January and moved about 90 days later. It was a very hard decision. Um, first of all, I love my job in Voss. I love the people of Voss. I really was enjoying all of the transformation that was going on in the agency world. And because I had sort of a long legacy at Havas, I felt pretty secure. I felt like it, it was likely to be a place uh, where I could stay for several more years and still make a reasonable contribution. But I also felt like I was getting stale. And so when they first approached me, I was like, absolutely not. My father was a smoker. I'm a non-smoker. I'm not interested. Um, they sound like very nice people. Let me give you a couple of names. And um, the wonderful headhunter, Jean Allen at Hydric, just kept coming back to me. And she was really lovely, so I wanted to be cooperative. The next thing I knew, my paperwork was submitted. But she kept saying, don't worry. It's very unlikely they'll want to see you. They don't really necessarily want an agency person. And um, in November, I guess, for the first time, I met the chairman of the board, who was the former CEO, as well as the CEO. And then I started to be interested, but much more interested intellectually. I still had no intention of going to the corporate side, even less intention 
of going to a tobacco company and almost no interest in moving to Switzerland. So all those things were working against it. So I guess as they say here, I was the least interested candidate, which made me quite desirable to them. I was friendly. I was approachable. I was very opinionated. And I couldn't have cared less about ever getting the job. In fact, until the day I received the offer, I just kept hoping they would go away and we could just be friends. So it was a very tough decision. It was a tough decision to upend my life. It was a tough decision to give up colleagues and friends of many, many years on a day-to-day basis. And it was a tough decision to go to a company that I knew would be taboo to many people I cared about. Wow. Wow. But you did it anyway. Why? The intellectual challenge of getting people to quit smoking was one I didn't want to pass up. You know, many, many years ago, I was the first person at our agency, Shia Day, to get really involved with the Internet. And I really learned a lot from learning a lot. And I always claim that I was given back my 20s and my 30s as a consequence. And I felt like this was a chance to be given back my 30s and my 50s. So it, for me, it was a chance to come and do something completely different, approach problems completely differently, using all kinds of tools, having access to bigger budgets to try to change the world. So I came in a very altruistic mode, and I have to say the company's beaten my expectations in terms of the things I've been asked to work on, never touch any areas where I'd feel personally compromised. Did they make any commitments to you? And, and was there, a, you know, like a set of criteria that you brought up with them prior, you know, to your joining them? Um, in terms of their commitment, for example, to a, a, you know, a smoke-free world and that kind of thing? Well, you know, long before I got here, they'd committed to a smoke-free future. Right. While I was in the process of joining, they were appearing in front of the FDA to start, or in the Chipsack hearings to start to bring the IFOS product into the U.S. market following all of the guidelines around um, you know, establishing such a product. So they didn't really have to because smoke-free was so much part of their culture. I didn't have to, and it was, became really clear to me that I would never be asked to work on Marlboro. So I don't know if I would say it was bona fide promises. It just has never happened. Right. In fact, yeah. my first exposure to working on anything related to cigarettes is my team will be involved in some butt litter campaigns this fall, very much about the environment, very much going back to sustainability and things I really care about. And, but, no, I, I, I don't even know very many people that do professional tobacco marketing here. When I say to, I mean combustible tobacco. Um, so my whole focus has been on the corporate brand and on the conversion, that if you don't smoke, don't start. If you smoke, quit. And if you um, won't quit, then change to something better. Did you ever smoke, Marion? No, I'm a, not only am I a non-smoker, I'm really a never-smoker. Um, in my entire life, I think I've experienced two cigarettes and a total <laughs> unsatisfactory experience. I never had any interest. I banned smokers from my house. Yeah. Even when I, uh, many years ago, I was expatriated when I was at TVWA and became very friendly with a whole group of people in the Netherlands. Every time they'd come and visit, I'd make the smoke 50 feet from the house. So no, I'm, 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 an, I'm a vitriolic never-smoker. <laughs> So did you did you take any flack for joining a tobacco company from friends, family, or professional colleagues? You know, there are some strong feelings out there, obviously, and a number of PR agencies uh, currently, you know, refuse to work for tobacco companies. So did you, you know, was this part of the equation? I guess did you 
Did you anticipate taking any flack? And if so, did you? So let me be really clear. Yes, I've taken flack. Yes, some people have been very rude or cruel or inappropriate, I would argue. But I have every res- I respect them for that in some ways. I mean, look, things that kill people you love are not things that you want to savor or promote. I understand that right. completely. But I'm a, I'm a two-time brain tumor survivor. And I felt that I studied as much as I could study. I learned as much as I could learn. And in some ways, getting people to go over from combustible cigarettes to better alternatives was almost as good as getting them to quit completely, which is obviously still our primary objective. Right. So people have been tough on me about it. I think people have been tough on me that I've sold out. Well, I don't know anybody who works in the commercial sector who isn't selling out, i.e. you get paid for work. Um, I've had to stomach a lot of those things, but once I made my choice, I was very sure of what I had done. I was very sure of what I was doing on behalf of our family and on behalf of people I cared about that smoke. Um, unsmoking people I know is one of my hobbies now. In fact, I'm having a problem. I don't know enough smokers to unsmoke, so if any of your listeners are smoking new friends, I'd be happy to unsmoke them. But in, in all <laughs> yes, people have been tough, and, and many people have been fair and skeptical. I have a lot of respect and time for people who want to dispute it and argue it and question whether Philip Morris is sincere. I don't have um, a lot of time for people that just want to quote fake rhetoric. And for me, fake rhetoric is, you know, many years ago, um, anti-tobacco people challenged cigarette companies to do something better. Now that we've done something better, they challenge whether we can be trusted to do something better. I wasn't here in the 70s. I wasn't here in the 80s. I wasn't here in the 90s. I know what I'm doing now of getting people to unsmoke is doing something better. So if you criticize me for that, you better have um, ample evidence. Um, if you criticize me for choosing to work for this company, um, I'd encourage you to come and visit the company. It's a pretty extraordinary, wonderful place. I mean, I've had a luxury of always having pretty good employers, but this is probably the best one I've ever had in terms of its real compassion for hmm. its people. Um, it's commitment to training. It's commitment to career development. Um, so I'm pretty high on this after 18 months, probably higher than I was when I got here, to tell you the truth. Well, you know, you've been there, what, 18 months now. Um, yeah. Do you feel, you know, uh, given what you're saying, do you feel that message is coming across uh, to various publics uh, out there that Philip Morris indeed is committed, you know, to uh, to smoke-free and that, you know, you're obviously among the key people there who are, you know, carrying the banner for that? Is there, is there still skepticism? So, look, it's a team effort. I've inherited a wonderful team. We've built a great team. Um, it depends what country you're in. Do if I feel like the message is really resonating, you'd have to tell me if you feel like it resonates in the U.S. But remember, our, our smoke-free products are not even on sale in the U.S. for another couple of weeks. I think our test market is Atlanta, um, and that's end of September. So um, in, you know, in places like Kazakhstan, in places like Bulgaria, in places like Germany, where I've done a number of visits, where I've been very visible in terms of driving the conversation towards smoke-free, I'd say outstanding job. Um, in other places, I haven't been able to make enough of a difference yet. I'd say in the UK, I haven't made enough difference yet. So um, the jury's out. This is not a sprint. Louis Camilleri, who is the chairman or was the chairman of our board when I was recruited was a longtime CEO. I ran into him in the lobby of the Philip Morris offices in New York about three months in. 
And he looked at me and said to me, Marion, you look very tired. Are you okay? I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. He said, I need to remind you, uh, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And every Friday night when I go home, no matter where in the world I am, when I'm just kind of leaving for Friday, I keep reminding myself to make Saturday sacred because it's a marathon, not a sprint. Can you share with our listeners, Marion, you know, the manner in which uh, Philip Morris, uh, you know, plans to wind down its, you know, tobacco uh, products and capabilities and uh, eliminate them from, from the world? And remember, what we're trying to do is wind down our combustible cigarettes. Um, it, it is not about winding down aqueous tobacco. It's about um, converting people um, to much less dangerous ways to enjoy a tobacco experience. Right. Um, in addition, obviously, we are very much encouraging people not to start. We are um, absolutely um, committed to um, very high principles around no youth smoking, around we've supported the age 21 bills in the U.S. I think that the big thing for us is that we need to um, move people over to safer choices, and the first safe choice is not to start smoking. Um, what we have done is start to divert as much of our spend as possible towards our healthier um, products, towards our better-for-you products. So you'll see a much greater emphasis placed on communicating about and marketing um, in any country in which we are approved. We wait until we're officially approved to be on sale with our healthier products. Right. But once a healthier product is on the market, um, the lion's share of our support goes to the healthier products, not to conventional combustible cigarettes. Yeah. Do you, do you uh, whether it's a government agency or, or uh, uh volunteer groups or medical organizations, do you, what is the greatest resistance that you still face out there in terms of, of you know, um, making it clear uh, what the company's goals are? Are there, are there uh, diehard groups that refuse to believe anything you say? Sure, there absolutely are. I would say the one that is the most um, difficult for us to contend with is the World Health Organization. Um, and I'd say that they pose interesting challenges because I don't think they want to believe that we've gotten better and that we're doing better and that our science resonates. So we spend a lot of time combating what I'm going to call um, fake news, um, but news that isn't grounded um, in fair and balanced evaluation of our scientific findings, but it's grounded in the old monologues um, against tobacco. Without understanding, look, um, I wish that nobody ever smoked. I certainly would um, be very hard on anybody that I cared about who was smoking a combustible cigarette. I would do everything I could to convince them to change. But the reality is that their own data shows that 1.1 billion people will still be smoking um, at 2025. And I think that what we need to do is be sure that we're giving those people better alternatives. So coming out against us and all that is probably not the best way to get people to, to, to make healthier choices. So the WHO is probably the number one source of anxiety for us. Did you say 1.1 billion people will be still smoking yes. in 2025? Yes. That's yep. a staggering number. Wow. Obviously, that's worldwide, not not just in any one country. That uh, No, no, it's totally worldwide, and that counts yeah. all of the um, emerging markets. And it's, But it, it, it is a staggering number. Is there a goal for how many people will be smoking? That's 2025. Say, 
how many people you know uh would will still be smoking in 2035 I mean, look, I don't want to pull numbers out of the sky, and I think sure. that all those things. I mean, because we don't, look, we don't know what else is going to come onto the market. We don't know yeah. what kinds of new science. Um, I, I'm not in a position to speculate on that. What I can say to you is that all of the best companies are going to have to commit themselves to giving people a better alternatives, um, better ways, healthier ways to consume the tobacco yeah. products that they seek. Speaking of science, uh, is Philip Morris uh, taking part in any scientific studies itself, you know, that will hopefully change the equation as time goes by? Yeah, I mean, that's really the most impressive thing I think about having joined Philip Morris that I learned was the number of scientists we have employed here that we've spent over $6 billion um, in the last decade to create better products, the degree wow. to which we invest in um, Scientific research centers, we have a place here in New Chapelle, Switzerland, which we call the Cube, that is home to um, hundreds of scientists, and they could be anything from biochemists to um, nuclear pharmacologists to um, people who are looking for better choice, for opportunities to give people better choices. So you've been there for a year and a half now. Um, what do you feel is the impact that, to date that you think you've had at the company so far? So I'd say my impact is twofold. Number one, um, I think it's a positive move because I think, look, women um, need to see it to believe it. So I think having a female member of our senior management team um, has made a difference. So I think it's given um, young women the opportunity to envision what their it, it is like to be a senior leader in a Fortune 500 company. And number two, we've opened up the channels of communication. We don't run and hide. We answer tough questions. We participate in the dialogue. We um, we get out there and we talk about what people need to talk about, which is uh, finding better, safer choices. Um, quite simply, I think I brought a certain naivete to the job because I'm not a tobacco person. I didn't immediately assume people were going to hate us. I assumed people just wanted uh, a healthy debate. So I've been able to drive us into healthier debates, whether it's at UN General Assembly Week, whether it's been the Can Ideas Festival, I've taken us places where we've been able to participate in high-level conversations that change people's minds. At least ask, invite them to ask tough questions. Well, Mars is a is a, a quite a diversified uh, company, isn't it, Marion? Could you remind our listeners, like some of the other product areas and companies that that are, are currently part of Philip Morris? Actually, I think you're thinking about the old Philip Morris. Um, what that was Altria. So Philip Morris now is. Um, only in the tobacco business. I mean, obviously okay. we have some investments and in other things, but I think what you're asking about is, is Altria, um, which is our former our former spouse, with whom we have um, are birthing a child in the next couple of weeks, which is the launch of ICOS in the U.S. So they will be distributing ICOS for us in the U.S. I think you're asking me about that and not um, about both. I, I International. think so. I think so. Yeah. Yes. Everyone, yes. everyone does it. So you're an enormously elite company. Even myself, when I was interviewing. For many weeks, I was so confused. Where am I interviewing? So, so one of your goals is really to uh, unconfuse people about exactly you know what the company is and what it does. And it's very much a, a challenge because Philip Morris USA is still part of Altria. So yes, um, educating people around naming and nomenclature is the job. And right now, based on your question, I will give me myself an ask for failure on that so far. <laughs> oh God. 
I'll give myself failure too <laughs> for not knowing the answer to that. So, what kind of a staff do you uh, have? Tell me about the structure, you know, of, of your global communications uh, uh, capabilities and uh, how how is this structured and kind of what are the overall areas that you're responsible for? So, it's very much a corporate marketing function. If you think about, it, I have recently added to my. Um, report internal communications and sponsorships, um, including our commitment to Formula One and other um, motorsports. Um, but our basic core functions are corporate communications, executive communications, market activations, which is um, our comms in market globally, um, crisis, as you can imagine, which we call special situations, which is an always-on function. Um, regulatory and scientific communications, and transformation strategies and communications. So it's kind of everything you would think of that your normal chief comms officer would have with a little bit more corporate marketing than maybe some of my peers of other companies have. Um, you, you have now been weaned off the agency side of your life. Do you miss it at all? I miss my agency friends. I miss the camaraderie of an agency but I don't miss the emphasis on billability. I don't miss the um, the way sometimes at the end of a week I'd feel very scattered. I would have put 19 hours into this and 12 hours into that and five hours. I don't miss I, I don't miss the um, lack of specificity. I definitely miss the people. I definitely miss the ideas. I definitely miss the. And I think what I miss the most, ironically, is lunchtime. And why do I say <laughs> lunchtime? Because in an agency where you're sitting in an open bullpen and there's very little hierarchy. Lunchtime was this great social experience for me sitting in the agency, and I miss that. I now have a big office. I'm sitting by myself. I have wonderful support staff. I have a team of almost sort of 90 people, but, I, um, but I'm on my own a lot more than I ever was in an agency. In an agency, I always felt like I had a sidekick, and my sidekick had a sidekick because I was sitting at a big <laughs> trader's table. I don't feel like I have that, so I miss that part. I, miss this, I even miss the online shopping tips that you would get in the bullpen. <laughs> you know, you, you Marin, you've you've received many honors during your career. Which which do you cherish the most? And as a follow up to that, what do you consider your greatest achievements to be? Obviously, uh, on the agency side, since you're just a year and a half into uh, Philip Morris. But what? Let's start with uh, which honors do you cherish the most that but you've it's, received? It's it's really funny because I should say all the wonderful honors that came, like the PR Week Global PR Person, PR Week U.S. PR Person. But I should say, you know, it, is, it goes back to when I was in my early, early 30s, and I was given two honors at the same time in, I think it was 1994-95. One was New York's first Cyber 60, so being named as that first group, which was really an insane award to be given because I was like one minute into the cyberspace world but it was New York Cyber 60, and then it was Crane's 40 Under 40 because I think it reminds me for how long I've been in this marathon. And so I think the idea that I'm still doing it 20 years after that award hmm. is pretty is pretty exciting. So, yeah, look, I, I mean, people are so generous with awards, and it's so much fun to get them, and it's so much fun to share them with the team. But I think it was those ones very early on when I still needed to be reminded that anything was possible, it was winning those Anything is Possible awards back in my early 30s that really, I think, spurred me to do what I've gone on to do. 
That's great. That's great. You got a really great jump start there, didn't you? Uh, well, I mean, so, a lot. Of, I think a lot of it. Everyone forgets how lucky women were. I mean, for all the bad, crazy things that our industries have seen, um, you know, joining the workplace in the '80s as a female, as a well-educated female, as a female who wanted a career. Everyone also forgets that it was really the land of opportunity. And yeah, look, horrible things went on. I do not mean to minimize or marginalize various experiences that people had, but it was the Wild West in terms of if you wanted to do it, you could grab for it. And I was just so fortunate to be working in those early days at Foreign with Jay Shiat and at Shiat Day for people you know, like the Bob Coopermans and the Ira Matavios, people that were really open to um, a woman doing any job that she was capable of doing. And so in my case, I taught myself online, which wasn't really a big feat because in those days, online was mostly how fast did you type. So, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I, I think, I think it was, yes, it was all great, but I think we, we forget that it really was a wide open time of opportunity also. Yeah. Well, you obviously capitalized on the opportunities that came your way. And so my next question to you is why, why do you feel that you have been, uh, successful in really rising to the top in in the public relations industry, uh, first agency uh, side of things, and now of course the corporate side of things. What do you feel that you have been able to bring to the party that has allowed you to, you know, to really get to the top of the ladder? So I think it's two things, and I think that um, they're kind of interrelated. Number one is really, I mean, m- having a real sense of fearlessness. If someone gives me a crazy thing, like move to Switzerland, I'm like, all right, I'm moving to Switzerland. I'm back in the nineties when Shia Day got sold to TBWA. They're like, move to Amsterdam. I'm like, all right, I'll move to Amsterdam. So it's a fearlessness, a fear. I have no fear of taking risks. I have no fear of failing. So I have failed so frequently that I've gotten really good at it. So for me, what might sideline someone else, um, for me, it's a little bit like, oh, I tripped in the third lap, but I put myself back up and I'm going to finish the race even if I'm going to come in 19th. I don't tend to deal with failure as a permanent condition. I'll deal with it as just another obstacle. And I mentioned my brain tumors, but I think that was the same approach that got me through it. Many people um, go through horrendous medical issues. I'm someone who did, but for me, I really dealt with it like this was just an adventure and I was going to learn something about myself from going through it. And so to quote um, Alison Fahey, who used to be the editor-in-chief at Adweek and is a good friend, she joked with me after my brain tumor that I am able to make lemonade out of lemons. But the reality was I went to Mass General, I had my brain tumor removed, and I ended up getting a pro bono client out of Project Homebase, which is the joint venture between Mass General and the Boston Red Sox, and she's like, only you would go to the hospital, have a brain tumor removed, and come back with a pro bono client. But that <laughs> really does summarize my whole approach yeah. to everything, which is, I guess, make the best of it. And mm-hmm. any situation can be an interesting opportunity. I don't tend – I do much better under pressure than I do if I'm bored. If I'm bored, it's like when I have a ripped fingernail. If, you, if I have a fingernail that's ripped, you would think that I was going through a catastrophic illness. When I had a catastrophic illness, I was like, oh, I have a scheduling problem. <laughs> so it's, I think it's a, a life approach. Wow, wow, wow. So, so given that, Marion, uh, you know, you've, you've been around public relations for many years. How, how, do you, how do you feel it's changed? How has public relations changed? 
So, you know, at my sort of in back in the 80s, my first real job was as a media relations person at a little agency that was called Keo White, working for this wonderful man called Jack Keo, who recently is deceased. And it was a place filled with integrity and personal relationships and um, lots of time to think and create narratives and then really carry those narratives through. And I think that the business has changed to be so real time and so transactional. And what scares me the most is I think a lot of people come through, say for a short bit, move on. I don't feel like people settle those really deep roots as much as they once did. So I think the change is really in the always on agile world. Fewer people are committed to it as a lifestyle versus as a job. I think when I think about Jack Keo and the people I learned from initially, and even people like Jim Abernathy that today still, you know, are, are part of the Abernathy migrant. These people, this was their passion. This was such a part of their sort of structural DNA. I don't know that that's still the case anymore. I feel like I, I miss that. I had lots of wonderful, wonderful young people that worked for and with me at Havas, for example. And I don't know that I would expect to see them 30 years from now still working in the space. I think the space is reinventing too quickly. The people are reinventing too quickly. So I think that I'm starting to feel like that old person who says, oh, back in the day, I used to walk to school seven miles. And back in the day, you know, you used to cultivate a relationship and you nurture a contact. I think everything's become much more transactional. And we have things like help a reporter, which is great. I mean, I don't know what we would do without things like that. But it's not the same as when we used to put together a mailing and mail out a pitch and then smile and dial. It's just a different time. So, um how do you see the uh, the corporate function uh, uh, changing in light of you know where the world is going? Uh, a lot of people talk about how agencies are changing. How, how how do you feel corporate communications will change? So I feel like I have a much bigger seat at the table than I would have had even coming into a job like this five or ten years ago. I feel like I'm treated as a business journalist whose specialty is the narrative or the arc of the message. So I, I think that um, ensuring that corporate people are really well-rounded in the business of business and then secondarily in the business of communications is really an imperative. I, I, in some ways, I'm glad I came to this job sort of as my last role because I'm worried that I would have quickly gotten engaged and wanted to learn other disciplines because of the way the corporate world works. You're so exposed every day to big ideas, to the way different um, – Functions approach different challenges. So I guess um, I, I'm going to say that I think the corporate world is demanding more from its communications leaders, and it's um, asking you to be generalists as well as specialists, and it's asking you to say hypercurrent. And you, you're not just a communicator, but you're also a because you have internal and external constituencies. You have the financial community, you have the regulatory community. It's 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 a big juggle, and I think. It's looking for people with much, much more curiosity and a willingness to keep learning. I mean, I would argue that I've probably learned as much in my 18 months here as I learned in my first 18 months in an Ivy League university where I was clueless. I mean, I remember getting to Brown and not even knowing what I was supposed to know, let alone how to go about knowing it. And after a while, you get to be pretty good at studenting. And I feel like at this point at Philip Mars, I've just become good at studenting. Um, to keep learning how to do my job better. 
So, how do you how do you feel that uh, public relations will change uh, going forward? Um, you, you've seen a lot of changes, obviously, uh, in your on, on the agency side of things. But overall, for, do you think public relations will continue to be called public relations? Uh, first of all, and secondly, um, so, yeah, the name. How, how I don't know. You know, there's so change? much emphasis on the name public relations, and so many people want to change it, and they want to call it stakeholder, and they want to call it this. To me, I couldn't care less what you call it. I think communications are is a more important skill than ever before. Being able to do um, a constant narrative is a more important challenge than ever before. Um, being able to effectively um, motivate people and change behaviors and change perceptions is going to matter more than ever before. But is it going to be called PR or comms or Whatever it's called, I, I don't know the answer. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I don't even know if the answer matters. I think what matters is developing the skills so that you can be part of the constantly evolving narrative. Yeah. Mary, I'm going to switch subjects now because I want to ask you a few questions about yourself. Um, okay. And, uh, for example, you know, it's clear, you know, that uh, you, you obviously have a particular working style. Uh, which you've had at, at Havas. You and I have had the opportunity, you know, to meet over the years yeah. uh, in my capacity, you know, as uh, somebody who engages in mergers and acquisitions mm-hmm. on the PR agency side of things. You know, I've had an opportunity to bring you some uh, companies uh, periodically over the Some years, of which we PR. should have bought, but that's a whole other subject. Yes, that's I know. true. I know, <laughs> yeah, I know. But, um, but what do you consider your working style to be? And how has it changed over the years? So I think my style tends to be exceedingly casual and um, very fast, meaning I tend to make my best decisions quickly and things I belabor, tend to, I tend to come up wrong on. I always say that um, my first instinct is the right instinct, and then if I sit around thinking about it for too long, I then become indecisive. Hmm. I think that... I'm naturally a very global person in that my career has very much been broken into parts that were the only real domestic job I've done as, an, as sort of an adult worker is the um, nine years at Boss North America because um, the rest of my jobs have been very, very global. So I'd say I'm very good at transcending any culture and just kind of making it, a go of it in whatever culture I'm in. So I'd say that my style is but very casual. I mean, I'm probably the the most uncorporate Fortune 500 <laughs> senior person you're going to find. So, Mary, where were you born and raised? I was born in New York City. I was raised in northern New Jersey in Bergen County. Uh-huh. Um, and then I went to live in Providence, Rhode Island to go to Brown um, in my later teens. And I sort of, I guess I think of home as some combination between the New York area and um, the beach in Rhode Island. And then we have a home in Tucson, Arizona, that unfortunately is the most inconvenient place in the entire world if you live in Lausanne, Switzerland. So I guess I'm very conflicted about what's home for me, but I was certainly born and raised in the New York area. Great. So was I. (laughs) uh, um, So... How do you how do you separate or can you you know I mean obviously you have a tremendous amount of responsibility at the PMI um, and you know then you have a, a personal life do you find it difficult to to uh, phase into one 
given the amount of, uh, of responsibility you have? You know, yes and no. I mean, in some ways this job has been more difficult because my husband stayed behind in the U.S. and he comes and goes from Switzerland, but he has his, has his own career um, as um, a lawyer um, slash law professor. And so going to Lausanne was not the most convenient thing I've ever put us on a journey to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he's around, I really do try to take the weekends off as much as possible. But what do I mean by off? For me, off means only three hours a day of being on. And so I think, what do I cheat the most? I probably cheat the most um, early morning hours where the the lazy me would prefer to be lying in bed sleeping, but the um, diligent me just gets up and does what I need to do electronically so I can free up my days. Um, I'm pretty good at managing stress. So as a consequence of that, I mean, every day here is stressful. Every night I could go home and stay up all night worrying about something that happened today. Um, I'm really grateful that I'm coming to do this kind of high-stress job this late in my career where I feel like I've already seen everything, so it's not as scary as it might have been 20 years ago. But separating life and work, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting challenge. Um, the best version of it was when I would go to my house in Tucson. The first summer I was at Philip Morris, I went home for um, three weeks, two of which I was going to um, work remotely. And it was amazing because I would get up at three o'clock in the morning. I would go electronically to work in Switzerland. And then I would hit our swimming pool at like 1030 in the morning and have this entire day where I was already completely unplugged from work because I'd already worked the whole day and Switzerland had gone home. <laughs> and so I'm good at, I'm good at managing. I can create this clock in my head and it's an artificial boundary, but I honor it. So I'm good at that. What are your hobbies? What do you do in your spare time? So if, if I say have, my if you, biggest if you have spare time that is <laughs> I'd say my biggest hobby is probably our golden retrievers. Um I oh. am very happy to always have at least two goldens. We have two goldens right now, both rescues, one that's 3, one that's 5. I love being around the dogs. The dogs have stayed. The dogs are at our beach house in Rhode Island. Um Jim is there with them, so I try to get home to he claims I don't really come home to see him. I try to get home to see the dogs. Um so I'd say dogs are one thing that's a big hobby. Another is I am addicted to pop culture, and I watch endless amounts of reality television, um, and I can escape into other people's worlds in a blink. So whether it's Chopped or it's the Kardashians or it's um, the Real Housewives of Sydney or Melbourne or Cheshire, England, for me that's sort of just great escape. And then obviously the last thing is anywhere in the world I will walk um, I try to walk five miles a day, so I rarely take the escalators in our building here. We have lots of escalators. We're over 11 floors. I run up and down. I try to get five miles, including steps in every day. So I'd call that less a hobby and more an obligation um, in terms of being sure that I still can um, keep moving at the speed for as long as possible. So um, what's your view on uh, you know, now that you're headquartered overseas and uh, you're physically removed from the United States, uh, for, you know, at least for a good part of your time. Um, where do you? What's your view on where the U.S. is currently? It makes me very scared. I don't because remember the the other problem I have is I'm a total news junkie, so I watch endless amounts of BBC and CNN and even Al Jazeera and MSNBC, and I feel like every day is more bad news. 
And I feel like in some ways for me, and this is going to sound weird because I'm a pretty um, determined progressive person. And yet I think watching for me two funerals from here, one was the funeral of President Bush and one was the funeral of Senator McCain. And I kind of stayed home and watched both funerals for a whole day on television. I realized how much um, my country has changed over the course of my working lifetime. And I don't necessarily like the degree to which we've become combative and divisive. And it's funny because I recently went back and watched this wonderful documentary that one of my school friends made about her mother. So it's a documentary that Donna Zaccaro, Geraldine Ferraro's daughter created about her mother. And the very ending scene is something I feel like every person in business should watch because it's basically um, at the, the end of, of her life, one of the last pen pals that Mrs. Farrar was communicating with was President Bush, and they're exchanging goodwill. And in the documentary, he and Mrs. Bush read out loud their final exchange with her. And you realize what a decent, kind, supportive country we used to be that people knew how to agree to disagree. And I kind of look at our country now, and I'm like, we forgot to remember how to disagree fairly and decently. And I, I make people watch that, that documentary just because I'm like, it was such a different country that I started working in. I mean, if you think about the debates of 1984, which is like kind of my first year of working, back in 1984, it was considered completely horrific when Mrs. Ferraro and Mrs. Bush got into that tiff over um, the word that rhymed with the word. And today, it, w- it would be perceived as so benign, I don't even know if it make news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Marion, what advice do you give to uh, aspiring young women today, you know, given you know, the Me Too movement and what have you uh, in, in terms of careers and uh, public relations. So I actually give the same advice to young men, though. It's really funny. I say you need to treat everyone in the workplace as you would a fraternal twin. So imagine if you were a twin, you were in a womb, you shared a womb, you were in close quarters, um, you were not going to be sexually intimate, you were never going to be sexually intimate. It was the ultimate taboo. Treat men and women with that same level of care and concern. If you think about great um, fraternal twins and how they treat one another, it's really wonderful to watch. And I, I always say to young people, that's really what you want to strive for uh, with men and women um, in the workplace. The other thing I say is if you believe you can have it all, you're completely nuts. So decide what really matters to you most and go after that first and then figure out how to sequence in everything else. Because as I've learned probably the hard way, um, you're going to have a working career that might span 40, 45 years. I mean, I certainly think, you know, if I live true to my plan and hang in there for another four or five years, I will have ended up working over 40 years. And I think that, you know, it's, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And I think you need to recognize and build upon and recognize how much you're going to change, but you can't do everything. There is no way I would have the career I have today if I hadn't upped in my 30s and moved to the Netherlands for a couple of years. Mm. If I had been, you know, a mom with three little kids, I don't know that I ever could have or would have even contemplated that. And so I think you have to figure out what you can do and how you can do it and make it work. But there's no right order anymore. You have a long time to get a lot in. And I think you need to stop being so hard. So nothing makes me more crazy than when I talk to a young woman, even in my own family, who will turn around and say, by the time I'm 27, I want to be married. And I'm always like, why? Or by the time I'm 31, I want to be a VP. Why? Like, what's the order? What are you seeking to achieve? 
And then how are you going to do it in a way that's going to give you the best of the best across as many categories as possible? I got one last question for you, Marion. Okay. okay. Then I'm going to let you go. Uh, okay. A busy day ahead of you. How do you want to be remembered? Oh, I think um, she failed fast and with a good sense of humor. <laughs> I think very much. I, I don't want to be remembered for what I accomplished. I really would prefer to be remembered for what I learned. And so to me, it's really a matter of failing fast and doing it with good, with good spirits and recognizing that you can learn from bad experiences as well as from good ones. All right. Okay. Well. Thank you uh, for having me. It's been fun. Marion, this has been a real pleasure on my part. This Great. has been a fascinating conversation with with somebody who, whom I have always respected and have the highest regard for in the public relations profession. And I really want to thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Listeners. It's been good fun. Great. I've been looking forward to listening it myself. Thank you. <laughs> so, Marion Salzman, thank you for joining us today and sharing your views with us. And thank you all for tuning into another of the series of PR Masters. Uh, and until next time, I'm Art Stevens, wishing you all the very best.